2 Kings uh, chapters 11 through 17. We're going to try to cover all of them uh, this morning, looking primarily at the fall of Israel uh, to the hands of the Assyrians. So we're going to cover a handful of chapters uh, in the events leading up to that, and then we're going to zoom in on 2 Kings 17 and looking at the fall of Israel. Now, a quick recap of the book of 2 Kings up till this point. Elijah uh, was a main character in 1 Kings toward the end of it. He dies, or he he, uh, is carried up to heaven uh, in a a fiery chariot in the beginning of of the book. He doesn't die, but he's taken up to to heaven. And his ministry is kind of transferred to Elisha. So so, uh, Elijah finishes his ministry, he's taken to heaven. Elisha takes up the mantle of his ministry. All kinds of miracles, uh, miraculous feedings, miraculous births of people that weren't able to... Uh, you know, get pregnant, healing diseases, raising people from the dead. It's this like um, really beautiful, comprehensive kind of foreshadow of Jesus's ministry. So we see that in the ministry of Elisha. There's geopolitical conflict in the region. Um, There's the reigns of several different kings in both uh, Israel. We can flip to the next slide, I think is... um, the, a map. Yep. So we got we got several kings that kind of come and go through the northern region of Israel, which is kind of headquartered in Samaria, and the southern region of du- Judah that's headquartered in Jerusalem. So several of those guys come and go. And today, in chapters eleven through uh, seventeen, uh, what, what's immediately just happened is King uh, Jehu uh, comes to um, co- basically wipes out the entire house of Ahab in. Uh, the nation of Israel, and several, like anyone that's kind of, you know, in proximity to the, the house of Ahab, and, uh, and so that's kind of where we left off in chapter 10. So we're going to see um, the, 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 the kings that follow King Jehu, all the way up until when Assyria kind of attacks. Assyria is kind of up north uh, east, even of Syria. It's another country kind of up there off the, the screen, but they're going to come in and, and attack and, and defeat and ultimately send Israel into captivity. So I'm going to pray, and then we're going to jump in in 2 Kings chapter 11 and get to work. Lord Jesus, we pray that you would bless our time um, in your word these next few minutes. We pray that you would use your word in our hearts and in our lives to uh, encourage us in the gospel so that we can walk with you and be faithful to you. In Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Okay, so um, Jehu has just wiped out a ton of people in Israel, and along the way, some collateral damage of Jehu, who was killing the entire house of Ahab and Jezebel, Ahab's wife, and all of his friends and family, and the the prophets of Baal, collateral damage to that uh, purge from Jehu was that he also killed uh, King um, Ahaziah down in Judah. And so after Jehu kills everyone in Israel, he becomes the king in Israel, but there's a vacancy on the throne in Judah. Ahaziah has been assassinated. And so now, uh, verse 1, it says, When Athaliah, the mother of Ahaziah, saw that her son was dead, she arose and destroyed all the royal family. So there's a, there's a vacancy on the throne in Judah, and rather than mourn and grieve her son who was just killed, like you might expect, Athalia says, ah, this is a time for me to, like, if I, if I spend time mourning, then one of, 
one of my son's sons, one of my grandchildren, my grandsons, will be installed as king. And I will effectively go from uh, the, the mother of the king, with a pretty good, considerable amount of power, to being the grandmother of the king, so slightly less power. So rather than mourn my son and see my power diminished, I'll murder all of my grandsons so that I can consolidate more power and kind of have more. So that's what she does. She starts killing all of her own grandsons. Verse 2, But Jehoshaphat, the daughter of, of King Joram, uh, sister of Ahaziah, took Joash, the son of Ahaziah, and stole him away from among the king's sons who were being put to death, and she put him and his nurse in a bedroom, and they hid from Athaliah so that he was not put to death. So Joash's aunt sees you know, Athalia killing all of her grandsons and thinking, man, Joash is the youngest of the, of these and he is, you know, uh, going to, going to be put to death as well. And so she takes him, hides him. I mean, and then, um, and then we pick up in verse four. Wait, I'm sorry, not verse four. Oh yeah. So, so, um, basically chapter 11 verses four through, uh, I don't know, maybe 12. Uh, they, um, Joash is, has, seven years old now. It's kind of fast forward seven years, and they basically uh, anoint Joash as king. They bring out a bunch of armed guards, give him a crown. In verses 13 through 20, uh, Athalia realizes that she failed to kill all of her grandsons. She realizes that she's got a seven-year-old grandson that she hasn't known was alive for the seven years, and so she starts kind of saying, this is treason, right? They are trying to, um, you know, commit treason against the queen and against the country and install this, this uh, other king in my place. But Jehoiada, the priest, says, no, it's not that you're the rightful queen and we are committing treason by installing this boy. Rather, you, he's the rightful king, and you are actually in violation of the law for, for kind of, he's the real king, you're the fake queen, and they kill Athalia. And they installed Joash at age seven as king. So crazy life for this guy, right? He's born to the king. Shortly after his birth, his father is murdered by Jehu. Shortly after his father is murdered, all of his siblings are murdered by his own grandmother. And then he lives seven years in hiding from his grandmother out of fear that she will try to kill him. And then around his seventh birthday... He is installed as, he's taken out of hiding, installed as king, and his grandmother is, uh, is, is murdered. So Je, uh, Joash has had a crazy life. And then in chapter 12, verse 4, uh, after he becomes king, he starts a fundraiser for the purpose of um, renovating the temple building. It says, um, he says, all of the money of all of the holy things that is brought into the house of the Lord, the money for which each man is assessed, the money from the assessment of persons, and the money that the man's heart prompts him to bring into the house of the Lord, let the priests take all that money, each from his donor, and let them repair the house wherever any repairs are discovered to be, to be needed. Verse 6. But then in the, in the 23rd year of King Jehoash, that's another name for Joash, those are interchangeable. In the 23rd year of King Joash, the priests had made no repairs on the house. And therefore the king summoned the priests and the other priests. And he said, why are you not repairing the house? Now therefore take no more money from the donors, but hand it over for the repair of the house. Right? He's like, give an account for like, how have you been spending all this money that people have been giving uh, to the temple for the repair of the temple building? And they're kind of like, we don't know. We've been, we've been spending it on other things. We're not really sure what to, you know, we don't really have an answer 
for you. Verse 8, so the priests agreed that they should take no more money from the people and that they should not repair the house. So basically the priests uh, were given this job of renovating the temple building, but they failed to steward their resources well, so they're kind of fired from that job. Verses 9 through 16, they implement a whole new system with new people overseeing it. They keep raising money. They put new people in charge of it. They're making some pretty substantive repairs. And then in uh, chapter 12, verse 17, word gets out about those repairs. And the Syrian army comes in and is like, hey, nice temple you got here. Like, you've, been, you've been building it up. You've been, you've been investing money in it. Uh, we, we like it. And so why don't you give all of the money that you've been pouring into your temple building to us so we don't kill you? And Joash hands it all over, all the silver, all the gold, all of the treasures of the of the temple he gives to the Syrian army in uh, chapter 12 verse 19 Joash is assassinated and his son uh, Amaziah takes over in his place a new temple but also newly uh, you know new geopolitical tension uh, with with Syria chapter 13 verse 1 uh, we kind of we go from from uh, Judah up to Israel up to Israel and Samaria, and we uh, meet uh, Jehoahaz, who is Jehu's son. Jehu was the guy who killed all the people, had this massive purge, uh, and so his son Jehoahaz is king up there. He's a bad king. He worships idols, uh, and he ends up dealing with conflict with Syria as well, just like Joash is doing down in Judah. Syria takes a huge chunk of his, of his army, and then he dies. And then Jehoahaz up in Israel is, is succeeded by another guy, this is weird, named Joash. So we just heard about Joash slash Jehoash, same name, uh, down in Judah. Well, now it's uh, the, another guy with the same name up in Israel, different guy, but same name up in Israel. And so uh, Joash um, is a bad king. He worships idols, he dies, and he's succeeded by someone named Jeroboam in verse, uh, let's see, in, in yeah, chapter 13, we're coming up on verse 14 now. So Jeroboam, again, let's look at confusing. Je- don't get Joash in Israel confused with Joash in Judah, two different guys. Don't get this Jeroboam in Israel confused with the first Jeroboam back from 1 Kings 12 that kind of started the whole, you know, Judah-Israel kind of succession in, in the first place. Different guy, same, same name. But we've got, we've got Jeroboam uh, up in Israel. Now, in chapter 13, verse 14, we have um, the, the prophet Elisha is nearing the end of his life. He's about to die. Uh, it says, when Elisha had fallen sick with the illness of which he was to die, Joash, the king of Israel, went down to him and wept before him, crying, my father, my father. The chariots of Israel and its horsemen. So this is before Joash dies, but um, he's he's about to. But Elisha's about to die, and Elisha uh, gives Joash, the king of Israel, kind of two prophecies that are both kind of born out of uh, these these kind of illustrations, as it were. And so Elisha said, Joash, take uh, a bow and some arrows. And he took the bow and arrows, and he said uh, to the king of Israel, draw the bow. And the king drew it. And Elisha laid his hand on the king's hands, and he said, open the, the window eastward, and he opened it. And then he said, now shoot. And he shoots an arrow. 
And then Elisha said, The Lord's arrow of victory, the arrow of victory over Syria. For you shall fight the Syrians in Aphek until you have made an end to them. So prophecy number one, illustrated by the arrow being shot, is that Israel is going to have victory over Syria. That's great news. Illustration number two, verse 18. He says, Now take the arrows, and he took them. And he said to the king of Israel, Strike the ground with them. And he struck the ground three times, but then stopped. And then Elisha was angry with him, and he said, You should have struck the ground five or six times. Then you would have struck down Syria until you made an end of it. But as it stands, you will only strike down Syria uh, only three times. So you'll have victory over them, but not complete, total annihilation and, and victory. So that's kind of Elisha's parting word to the king of Israel. He's that you're going to have victory over Syria, but you're not going to have total, comprehensive, end all be all victory over over Syria. You'll just have you'll win the battle but not necessarily win the win the war. Verse 20, Elisha died and they bury him. So Elijah is gone, Elisha is dead and gone. Then we see in the rest of verse 20, uh, now bands of Moabites used to invade the land in the spring of the year. And as a man was being buried, behold, a marauding band was seen and the man was thrown into the grave of Elisha. And as soon as the man touched the bones of Elisha, he revived and he stood up on his feet. So there's a, a, a dead body that is put uh, into the, the grave of Elisha. And as soon as he touches Elisha's body, um, his bones, he springs back to life and he gets up and like even after elisha's death the 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 spirit of god is still working powerfully through him and bringing life out of death and kind of uh you know reversing the effects of the of the curse chapter 13 verse 22 hazael the king of syria oppressed israel all the days of jehoahaz and so uh this guy um is oh so yeah he uh, but the lord was gracious to them and compassionate them turned them toward them um, verse 24, when Hazael, the king of Syria, died, Ben-Hadad, his son, became king in his place. Hazael has been a threat to the people of God for years and years, so he finally dies. Good news. And so once he dies, uh, Israel starts to take back some of the land that Hazael had taken from them over the, over the years. Let's see, chapter 14, verse 1. King Amaziah, he's, this is the son of Joash down in Judah. Uh, Amaziah is a pretty decent king, right? He removes all of the, the well, he, he doesn't remove all of the idols. So, like, Amaziah and several of the kings that come after them are, like, kind of good, but not great, right? Half good, half bad, because a lot of them follow in the ways uh, of the Lord. They worship God, but they also don't uh, all remove the idols from the land. So they kind of permit idolatry to kind of run rampant in the in the land, even though they themselves are trying to worship God. And so he's a Good king, not great, half good, half bad, that kind of thing. In chapter 14, verse 7, King Amaziah of Judah goes out to Edom uh, and, and battles against them, and he wins. And so then he kind of comes home after this victory in the battle of Edom, and he's a little bit full of himself. And he's like, hey, let's run it back. Let's, let's double down, see if we can get another military victory here. Verse 8, uh, chapter 14, verse 8, Then Amaziah sent messengers to Jehoash, the son of Jehoahaz, the son of Jehu, the king of Israel, and said, come, let us look one another in the face. That means fight. That means let's do battle against each other and let's, you know, let's see who, who wins. And so uh, the king of Judah is challenging the king of Israel to a war, despite the fact that they, you know, a few short generations ago were the same, were, were the same country. So he's kind of challenging him to war. And then here's the response in verse 9 from the king of Israel. He says, a thistle 
on Lebanon sent to a cedar on Lebanon, saying, Give your daughter to my son for a wife. But a wild beast of Lebanon passed by and trampled down the thistle. It says, You have indeed struck down Edom. Way to go. Good on you. But your heart has been lifted up. And you be content with your glory and stay at home. Why should you provoke trouble so that, so that you fall, you and all of Judah with you? Right? In other words, quit, with, quit while you're ahead. You went and beat Edom, and that's great. So enjoy the spoils of that victory. But don't then try to you know, build momentum and come and fight me because I'll beat you up. Like, well, we, we're bigger and stronger than you, and we will win if we fight. But Amaziah, verse 11, But Amaziah would not listen, so Jehoash, king of Israel, went up, and he and Amaziah, king of Judah, faced one another in battle, which belongs to Judah. And Judah was defeated by Israel. Exactly what the king of Israel warned about. Judah was defeated, and every man fled to his home. And Jehoash, the king of Israel, captured Amaziah, uh, the king of Judah, the son of Jehoash. And he came to Jerusalem, and he broke down the wall of Jerusalem at the gate of Ephraim. And he seized the gold and the silver and all the vessels that were found in the house of the Lord and in the treasuries of the king's house and also hostages. And he returned to Samaria. So the king of Israel has had this big victory over the king of Judah. He kind of said, I warned you. I told you not to do it. You're the one. I mean, you, you kind of had this victory in the south against Edom. And then you tried to come to the north, and it didn't work work out. Chapter 14, verse 15, uh, King Joash dies up in Israel. Chapter 14, verse 17, uh, King Amaziah is killed down in Judah. 1423, uh, back up in Israel, Joash is succeeded by his son Jeroboam, who's a bad king. Chapter 15, verse 1, we're back down, like you we're going to like flip-flop quite a bit between Israel and Judah. We're back in Judah. Uh, Amaziah is succeeded by his son Azariah, also kind of half good, half bad, not, you know, good, not great. Uh, but this king has leprosy. We see that in uh, chapter, or in verse 5. Down to verse 8, we see Zechariah, the king in Israel. He's a bad king, and he's actually uh, assassinated by a guy named Shalom. Um, chapter 15, verse 13, Shalom takes over as king after killing Zechariah. He's a bad king. Uh, chapter 15, verse 17, uh, another guy, so, um, uh, another guy killed, so Shalom killed Zechariah, and now a guy named Menahem kills Shalom. Takes over, he's a bad, they're, they're all bad, right, in Israel, like in the northern region of Israel, they're all bad, they're all worshiping idols. And so now once Menahem uh, takes over, um, he, his country is attacked by Assyria. So Syria is the one that we uh, have been, been dealing with some recently. Now this is Assyria, two different countries. Um, and so now Assyria is kind of threatening and harassing the nation of uh, Israel. In verse 23, King Menahem dies and is succeeded by his son Pekahiah. Pekahiah is a bad king, worships idols. Uh, verse 27, um, Pekah, uh, uh, a guy named Pekah kills the king named Pekahiah and takes over um, as, as king. Um, he's also bad, worships idols, until he is killed by a guy named Hosea. So skip down to chapter 15, verse 32. We're back in Judah. Azariah was the guy who had leprosy. So that guy uh, dies, and he's succeeded by his son named Jotham. Now, uh, the word, uh, it, says, it says in verse, I think, 7, let's see, in, uh, no, I'm sorry, in, in verse, uh, chapter 15, verse 32, it says that Jotham is the son of Uzziah, 
but Uzziah and Azariah are also kind of variants of the same name. So just look at those, those two interchangeably. But um, eventually um, he dies and is succeeded by his son Ahaz. Jotham dies and Ahaz comes to reign in the nation of Judah. So it's kind of, we kind of sprint through a bunch of kings in, verse, or in chapter 15. We slow down a little bit in chapter 16 to look at the reign of Ahaz. And Ahaz is a bad guy. Verse 3, chapter 16, verse 3, it says, Ahaz burned his own son as an offering according to the despicable practices of the nations whom the Lord drove out before Israel. And he sacrificed and made offerings in the high places and on the hills and under every green tree. So Ahaz is a bad guy, bad king, bad leader, bad father, kills his own child as, a, as a, an offering, a sacrifice uh, to a false god. Verse 5, Then Rezin, the king of Syria, and Pekah, uh, the son of Ramaliah, the king of Israel, came to wage war on Jerusalem, and they besieged Ahaz, but could not conquer it. So, uh, we've got uh, King Ahaz down here in Judah, and then we've got the kings of Syria and Israel, or they kind of like uh, ally together, and they come down to attack Judah. And then verse 7, So Ahaz sent messengers to the king of Assyria and said, I'm your servant, I'm your son, come up and rescue me from the hand of the king of Syria and the king of Israel who are attacking me. So Israel and Syria are attacking Judah. Judah reaches out to Assyria, which is kind of way up there to the top right. Uh, and so we've got kind of these like two, uh, you know, these two alliances essentially that are kind of forming and battling against one another. Verse 8, Ahaz also took the silver and the gold that was found in the house of the Lord and the treasures of the king's house, and he gave them as a present to the king of Assyria. Israel and Syria versus Judah and Assyria. Verse 9, then the king of Assyria listened to him, and the king of Assyria marched up against Damascus and took it and carried its people to Ker, and he killed Rezin. So the king of Assyria that Judah reached out to for help killed the king of Syria that was part of the initial kind of threat to Judah. And now the king of Judah is like, man, great news. In chapter 16, verse 10, he goes to meet the king of Assyria and thank him for coming to his aid. And when he does, he sees this big fancy altar uh, that the king of Assyria uses to worship false gods. And then he says to his priest, he says, I like that altar that he's using to worship false gods. Make me one just like it. Get the specifications and build me an exact replica so that I can have that in the temple in Jerusalem where I'm supposed to be worshiping the one true God. So we're supposed to kind of be struck by how far, like how far, like how the mighty have fallen, right? Like Judah with this like beautiful temple that's there to worship God and the kings that are there, the kings that are in Jerusalem are more interested in uh, building, like copying, building a carbon copy of the fancy looking altars to false gods that they see in other nations than they are in actually just worshiping God as he has told his people to do in the temple that was built for that purpose. Chapter 17, verse 1, we are back in Israel. Last thing we saw in Israel was uh, Pekah, who was killed by a guy named Hosea. And so now Hosea is taking over as king. And in verse 3, it says, against him came up Shalmaneser, the king of Assyria, and Hosea became his vassal and paid him tribute. So Assyria attacks Israel Right, they just got finished attacking and defeating Syria. Now they're going to attack Israel. And Israel basically says, all right, look, you, you're bigger, you're stronger. We, 
you, you beat us. Like, we'll be your servants. We'll be your subjects. We'll pay you whatever you want us to pay you. Just please don't beat us up. Please don't uh, kill us. Verse 4, But the king of Assyria found treachery in Hosea, for he had sent messengers to, to sow the king of Egypt and offered no tribute to the king of Assyria as he had done year by year. So Assyria comes in, attacks Israel, and they say, let's get an arrangement where you pay us money for us not to kill you. And that happens for a year or two. And then at some point down the road, Israel stops paying tribute. They're like, we're not, you know, if you want the money that we've been paying you, come and get it. But meanwhile, he's going to go down to Egypt and say, hey, come help us fight against Syria when they inevitably come and attack us for us having stopped paying the tribute to them that we are supposed to pay. So that's the, that's the big plan from Israel is uh, get out from under the thumb of, Assy- of Assyria and uh, ally with Egypt if we need to. But the plan doesn't work. Verse 4, it says, Therefore the king of Assyria shut him up and bound him in prison. And the king of Assyria invaded all the land and came to Samaria, and for three years he besieged it. Verse 6, In the ninth year of Hosea, the king of Israel, or in ninth year of Hosea, the king of Assyria, captured Samaria. And he carried the Israelites away to Assyria and placed them in Halah and on the Habor, the river of the Gozan, and in the cities of the, the Medes. So Israel has fallen. Assyria has attacked it, besieged it, d- destroyed it, carried all the people off, taken them all over the, all over the place, which was kind of standard practice uh, in the ancient world, but especially in the Assyrian Empire. Whenever they would conquer a new people group, they would, they would uh, deport them and resettle them. And it was um, a few, you know, it kind of served a few different purposes. One is it would kind of cross-pollinate all the people that they would conquer, right? If like this people group over here has this agricultural strategy that would be, you know, that these people over here would benefit from learning about, then let's take these people and move them over here. And we can, like the whole empire can kind of be made stronger by learning from all of the people that we have conquered. But what it also does, and probably the main reason, was it just uh, demoralizes people, right? When you, when you conquer an area and you then take that, you forcibly remove all the people that there from them and you move them to a foreign country that speaks a different language, you break their spirit, you kind of dehumanize them, and you kind of, you know, ensure that they're not going to summon the courage to rise up uh, uh, against you. You put them in a strange land, unfamiliar, they lose their home field advantage, they lose any sense of familiarity, and they just kind of resign themselves to say, well, I guess it's, you know, this is just our lot in life now. Thank goodness we didn't die but let's just kind of get used to our new life in this new place that we've been forcibly moved to. So that is pretty much all the people of Israel now have been scattered all throughout the Assyrian Empire, kind of everywhere to the right and to the north of of what we can see on the the screen here. It's a bad situation. And in chapter 17, verse 7 and following, we see why it happened. I'm just going to read it because it's, uh, it gives us some insight into the underlying reasons why all of these things happen, right? Verse 7, And this occurred because the people of Israel had sinned against the Lord their God, who had brought them up out of the land of Egypt, under the hand of Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, and feared their gods, and walked in the customs of the nations whom the Lord drove out before the people of Israel, and in the customs that the kings of Israel had practiced. And the people of Israel did secretly uh, against the Lord their God things that were not right. They built for themselves high places. 
in all their towns, from every watchtower to fortified city. And they set up for themselves pillars and asherim on every high hill and under every green tree. And they made offerings in all the high places as the nations did, whom the Lord carried away before them. And they did wicked things, and they provoked the Lord to anger, and they served idols, of which the Lord had said to them, You shall not do this. Verse 13, Yet the Lord warned Israel and Judah by every prophet and every seer, saying, Turn from your evil ways and keep my commandments and my statutes in accordance with the law that I commanded your fathers and that I sent you by my servants, the prophets. Verse 14, But they would not listen. They were stubborn, and their, as their fathers had been, who did not believe in the Lord their God. They despised his statutes and his covenant that he made with their fathers and the warnings that he gave them. They went after false idols and became false, and they followed the nations that were around them concerning whom the Lord had commanded them that they should not do like them. And they abandoned all the commandments of the Lord their God, and they made for themselves metal images of calves, and they made uh, an Asherah and worshipped all the hosts of heaven and served Baal. They burned their sons and daughters as offerings and used divination and omens and sold themselves to do evil in the sight of the Lord, provoking him to anger. Therefore the Lord was very angry with Israel, and he removed them out of his sight. None was left but the tribe of Judah only. And Judah also did not keep the commandments of the Lord their God, but they walked in the customs that Israel had introduced. Right? The Lord rejected all the descendants of Israel and afflicted them and gave them into the hands of plunderers until he had cast them out of his sight. And when he had torn Israel from the house of David, and they made Jeroboam the son of Nabot king, and Jeroboam drove Israel from following the Lord and made them commit great sin. And the people of Israel walked in all the sins that Jeroboam did. They did not depart from them until the Lord removed Israel from out of his sight as he had spoken by all of his servants, the prophets. And so Israel was exiled from their own land to Assyria until this day. So why did Israel fall to Assyria? Why did did Israel go into captivity and be deported into the entire uh, empire? Was it because they were an inferior military power? Was it because they made some tactical mistake or blunder that kind of opened the door and, and left them vulnerable to being overcome by Assyria? Israel fell to Assyria because God caused it to happen. And God caused it to happen as judgment and discipline because of their sin against him. Worshiping other gods instead of him, disregarding his word, breaking him. Israel was conquered by Assyria and deported to these other countries because of their sin against God. And God responded with captivity and exile. And then in verses 24 and following, uh, the land that has been recently kind of exiled, of all of the people have been taken out of it, now Assyria brings all of these other people and resettles the land with foreigners. Verse 24, the king of Assyria brought the people of Babylon, Kutha, Ava, Hamath, and Sepharvaim, and placed them in the cities of Samaria instead of the people of Israel. And they took possession of Samaria and lived in its cities. So Israelites out, foreigners in. And at the beginning of their dwelling there, they did not fear the Lord, which makes sense. They're they don't know how to. They're, they're, they've not been introduced to the, the God of, of Israel. And therefore the Lord sent lions among them, which killed 
some of them. So foreigners settling in the land, they invite judgment from God on themselves because they're worshiping false gods instead of the one true God. And look how the king of Assyria responds, which is ironically different and frankly preferable to how the kings of Israel have been responding this whole time. Verse 26, the king of Assyria was told, the nations have carried away, the nations you have carried away and placed in the cities of Samaria do not know the law of the God of the land. Therefore, he sent lions among them and behold, they are killing them because they do not know the law of God. And then the king says, verse 27, send there one of the priests whom you carried away from there and let him go and dwell there and teach them the law of the God of the land. And one of the priests whom they carried away from Samaria came and lived in Bethel and taught them how they should fear the Lord. So, so all of the you know, Israelite king after Israelite king after Israelite king, they uh, see sin in the land and they see judgment from God because of their sin and they double down. They, they just sin more, worship idols more, lead people into idolatry more and more. And then this foreign pagan king sees the judgment of God that comes from idolatry and says, well, let's... Let's find out how we should be, like if God is mad that we're not worshiping him, let's find out what we need to do to worship God and to a, a, a appease him, right? The, the, the foreign king is responding better than the, the kings of Israel. It's embarrassing when non-Christians and, and pagans who don't believe in God actually obey God better than people who identify as the people of God. Do, right, this is this is meant to be an embarrassing an embarrassment to the to the kings of Israel and to the people who identify as the people of God. Chapter seventeen, verse thirty-two. They also feared the Lord and appointed from among themselves all sorts of people of, of priests of high places and sacrificed for them in the shrines and the high places. And they feared the Lord, but they also served other gods after the manner of the nations from among whom they had been carried away. So it was a valiant effort. Let's hear from God about how we should worship God. But they fail to understand the exclusivity of the claims of God when God says you're not to worship any other gods uh, instead of me, before me, alongside of me, besides me, right? They, they fail to realize that, that worshiping God is this all-or-nothing proposition. You worship God and he is your God or you don't worship him at all. But don't bother with you know, pretending to worship God while also reserving the right to worship all of these other false gods alongside of him. Verse 34, to this day, they do according to the former manner. They do not fear the Lord. They do not follow his statutes or his rules or the law of his commandments. Uh, verse 35, the Lord made a covenant with them. Oh, yeah, they, according to the commandments that they gave the children of Jacob, whom he named Israel. So Israel, verse 35, the Lord had made a covenant with them saying, don't fear other gods. Don't bow before them. Don't serve them. Don't sacrifice to them. You shall fear the Lord who brought you out of Egypt with great power. You shall, you shall bow yourselves to him, and to him you shall sacrifice. And the statutes and rules and the law of the commandment that he wrote to you, you shall always be careful to do. You shall not fear other gods. You shall not forget the covenant that God made with you. You shall not fear other gods, but you shall fear the Lord your God, and he will deliver you out of the hand of your enemies. But, verse 40, they would not listen, but they did according to their former manner. So these nations feared the Lord and also served carved images, and their children did likewise, and their children's children as their fathers did, so they do to this day. So the idolatry of the people of God that brought about this massive siege, deportation, captivity, exile... 
And now we see that the, the exile has not led to any improvement in the religious belief and practice of the people who dwell in the land. Nothing has changed. Things are just as bad now in the nation of Israel as they were. Things are just as bad now after the exile as they were before. And things were just as bad then as they were before Israel ever even got there. When it was, when it was Canaan, back before they took possession of the, of the land. They're slightly better down in Judah, but they're, not long, you know, they're on a similar trajectory. And it won't be long before Judah arrives at the same fate that Israel has uh, arrived at. It's going to happen by the time we get to the end of the book. So Israel has been taken captive. Judah, the clock is ticking. And it raises some very big questions that we have to wrestle with. The story of Israel falling into captivity raises some very big... Because because what are we to make of... This, the reality, this narrative that, that Israel... So God called Israel. God chose Israel. God called Abraham out of you know, his former way of life. And he called and he said, I'm going to plant you in the promised land. I'm going to give you a family, a nation. God called uh, Moses to lead the people out of Egypt through the Red Sea to Sinai. God sustained them in the wilderness. And the, the promise that was being held out through all of that time was, I'm going to put you in the promised land. I'm going to put you in Israel. I'm going to put you right there and I'm going to make a nation out of you. That's your home. That's the promised land. And now God has brought the Assyrian Empire to crush them and send them into exile. What are we to, what are we to make of that? Right? Genesis 12. I will make you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great. I will bless all the families of the earth through you. Exodus 3. I've seen the affliction of my people. I've come to deliver them from the Egyptians and bring them up out of that land to a good and broad land flowing with milk and honey, the place of the Canaanites. Deuteronomy 28. Blessed you shall be in the city, and blessed you shall be in the field. Blessed shall be the fruit of your womb, and the fruit of your ground, and the fruit of your cattle. And you shall increase in herds, and the young of your flock. Blessed shall your basket be, and your kneading bowl. Blessed shall you be when you come in, and when you go out. The Lord will cause your enemies who rise against you to be defeated before you. And they shall come against you one way, and then they shall flee before you. The Lord will command the blessing on you and your barns, and all that you undertake. He will bless you and give you. All the peoples of the earth shall see that you are called by my name, and, that you, and they shall be afraid of you. The Lord will make you abound in prosperity. The Lord will open to you his treasury from the heavens and rain down on your land in its season to bless all the works of your life. Like, what are we to do with all of these promises that Israel has been leaning on and, and deriving hope from for years and generations? Bef- I mean, uh, Joshua, before they went in, right? Uh, arise and go over the Jordan River. Right? So go over the Jordan and take possession of the land of, of Israel. Every place that the sole of your foot will tread upon, I have given to you, just as I promised Moses. From the wilderness uh, it, it, in this, to Lebanon, to the far rivers, no one will be able to stand against you all the days of your life. I was with Moses. I will be with you. I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. So be strong and courageous and take the, the land. Over and over and over. 
I will give you this land. I will be with you. No one is going to defeat you. No one is going to have victory over you. You will have victory over them. Fast forward to the Lord removed Israel out of his sight. And Israel was exiled from their own land to Assyria until this day. That raises big questions about the character of God that we have to wrestle with. Either God keeps his word or he doesn't. What about all the what about all the promises you made? What, God, why are you allowing this to, to happen? We were, we were under the impression that you were going to treat us this way. We were under the impression that our lives were going to look like this. We were taking these promises that you made, and we were kind of creating this picture in our minds of what that would look like. Here's what it means. Here's what it doesn't mean. And now there's been this dramatic turn of events, and frankly, we're not happy about it. I wanted to... Marry this person. I wanted to live in this home. I want to have this job. I want, to, I want my family to look like this. I want my health to look like this. I want these possessions. I want this level of financial security. That's what I want my life to look like. That's what I'm under the impression that it's going to look like. I feel like you have promised me that and given me that. I've grown accustomed to it. I've come to count on it. And then out of nowhere, you know, got fired, got laid off, got diagnosed with some medical condition, spouse leaves me, adultery, divorce, kids walk away from the faith, close friend, you know, turns their back on you, severs the relationship, death in the family, spouse, parents, children, miscarriage, infertility, right? Like, like God, I wanted my life to look like this. I was under the impression that you had promised me a life that's going to look like this. And now the rug has been ripped out from under me and there's pain and suffering and turbulence and instability. Everything that I had is gone. I've got, I've got nowhere to go. That was Israel after the Assyrian captivity. When that happens, there's a few ways that we can respond. Right? You can say, the life I wanted was good. The life I was expecting to live was good. The life that I had come to feel entitled to and that God had promised to me was good. It was God's plan. It was God's best. And so the fact that I'm not living it right now means that God has dropped the ball. God has failed. He's weak. He's impotent. He's not strong enough to accomplish His will. He's not powerful enough to give me the life that He wants to give me. Or you can say, the life that I wanted to live was good. It was the, 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 my, the plan, it was, it was God's plan, it was God's will, but frankly, God is withholding it from me because he's bad, he's malevolent, he's, he's evil, he's a terrible ogre that takes delight in torturing people and inflicting pain on them and taking away all of the good things that he promised to them. 
I imagine that a great many people in Israel settled on one of those options. God is weak. God is bad. God is evil. God is indifferent. I know a lot of people today who have settled on one of those options. Some element of suffering or instability is introduced into their lives. Things don't go the way that they want. Things don't go the way that they planned. And they, you know, they, they, they conclude that God is evil. God is, is, is indifferent. God is weak. They walk away from the faith. I also know a lot of people who think differently and who have arrived at a different option altogether. A different way of processing and understanding and coming to grips with suffering and pain in their lives. Who say, okay, admittedly, the life that I had was good. The life that I wanted was good, but now it's gone. And rather than blame God and assume that he's weak, or rather than blame God and assume that he is evil, instead I'm going to trust that the life that God has given me is in fact what is best for me. It doesn't seem like it. It doesn't feel like it. Everything in me, every instinct, every intuition, every fiber of my being is screaming that this is bad, this is wrong. There's no way that a good God would ever allow something like this to happen. But rather than listening to myself and trusting in myself and being at the mercy of what myself wants and thinks and feels, instead I'm going to trust God. I'm going to hold out hope that God might actually know something that I don't. That God is working all things for my good, that God intended for my life to look this way, not because he's bad, not because he's weak, not because he's indifferent, but because he is good and sovereign and and faithful. I'm going to assume that the life that I wanted, I'm going to assume that the life that God gave me is better than the life that I wanted. I'm going to assume that God knows what's good better than I know what's good and that God's will is better than my will. Now, it's easy for you to say, Ben. Right? It's, you know, you're not the one who has to pick up all the pieces and move. Like, you're not the one who just buried their loved one. You don't know what this hard thing is that I'm going through. You don't know how difficult it is for me to trust God and trust that He is good. You don't know that, that God can take something that's this bad and use it for good. You don't know that God can bring something good out of something like what I am experiencing. Friends, the night before Jesus was crucified on the cross, he went to the Garden of Gethsemane and he prayed. And he said, Father, if you are willing, please take this cup from me. Don't make me go to the cross. Let's find another way. 
I don't want to be beaten. I don't want to be tortured. I don't want to experience separation from you. I don't want to experience the terrible wrath of God. Let's find another way. And the father's answer was, no. There is no other way. And Jesus went to the cross. Jesus was smitten and stricken and abandoned and and crushed under the weight of the terrible wrath of God. Friends, I think that we can all agree that that moment was the worst moment in all of human history. The torture and murder and death of the Son of God. Jesus prayed that it wouldn't happen, and it happened anyway, and it was the worst thing that had ever happened. It's the worst thing that could ever possibly happen. And yet, through the death of Christ on the cross, God accomplished salvation for his people. Sin was atoned for. The wrath of God was satisfied. Sinners can be reconciled back into a right relationship with God. Their eternity can be secured. They can have assurance as they walk through life toward death. The, The death of Christ on the cross was, without a doubt, the worst thing that has ever happened in the history of the world. And it was the best thing that has ever happened in the history of the world. Because... God's will is better than our will. When we suffer, it's easy to assume that God is indifferent, he's weak, he's powerless, he's bad, he's malevolent, but the reality is God's will is better than ours. The suffering that we experience in this life is part of God's will, and God's will is better than our will. God's will culminates in redemption, salvation, reconciliation, and eternal life as we live with God under his righteous rule. That's better than our will. That's better than the life that's, that's devoid of suffering that we envisioned for ourselves. If you need proof that it's better to walk with God through suffering than it is to have the exact life that you wanted to have, if you need proof of that, you need not look any further than the person and work of Jesus Christ. Your life is not always going to look the way you wanted it to. There are going to be times when you are tempted to question and doubt the promises of God and question why he would allow something like this to happen to you. And when that happens, God is calling us to look to Christ, trust in him, Trust that God is sovereign and trust that he is good. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we thank you that you are sovereign. And we thank you that you are good. We thank you that you have proven those things to us when Jesus died on the cross to save us from our sins. Lord, we pray that we could trust in you even when our lives are difficult, even when we suffer. We pray that we could hold fast to you. 
and persevere in the faith for your glory and for our joy. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.